0: Amen. Would you please join me as we now want to stand together and read our sermon text this morning. So if you have a Bible on hand and I hope you do, you want to turn to Exodus, uh, chapter 3, where we find ourselves in our ongoing study through the Bibles. A second book we come to what is uh, no doubt one of the most famous scenes in all of Exodus. I'm sure you would probably agree with me, those of you that know this passage, one of the most famous scenes in all the Old Testament. One of the most famous scenes in even all the Bible, as well as what we want to do is look at God's revelation of His name to Moses. And it's a passage that has actually a fair amount of difficulty and debate attached to it, a part of which is actually where you stop in terms of preaching, because it's a very long conversation that Moses and Yahweh have. It Really, the scene stretches from verse 1 of chapter 3 all the way to verse 17 of chapter 4. But what I want to do between this week and, Lord willing, next week is split that one long conversation up into two parts, thinking particularly this day about God's character and next week, Lord willing, about God's commission that He gives to Moses. So today, we want to look at the first 15 verses of Exodus 3. Let me read those verses for us and then pray that God will bless our study and we'll begin. Let us hear now as our covenant king speaks to us through his word. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land, to a good land, a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you and shall give you this sign that I have sent for you, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Then he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask for your help. We ask for the abundance of the Spirit that He might fill us with insight, that He might fill us with wisdom, that He might fill us with the knowledge of You. So send Him that our eyes might be opened, and that our hearts might be full as we want to look upon Jesus Christ, to gaze into His glory, His majesty, and His beauty. Help us to hear as dying people. Help us to listen with eagerness and earnestness, with meekness and humility. Help me to preach as a dying man with courage and clarity, as you say, I must. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was in the late 1990s, maybe the mid 1990s, when Christianity Today asked the readers of their magazine to name the most influential theologians of the 20th century. And right at the top of the list was a man named C.S. Lewis. And I wonder if you might guess who was number two on that list, the most influential theologians of the 20th century. So, a man named J.I. Packer, who passed away just a, a few months ago. And surely the reason for the esteem that their readers had for J.I. Packer was because of his 1973 book that has sold well north of a million copies, something of a wonder in Christian publishing, called Knowing God. And some of you may have read that book. And right at the outset of the book, in his own inimitable way, Packer tells you exactly why he's writing this book. He says in the preface, the conviction behind this book is that ignorance of God, ignorance both of His ways and the practice of communion with Him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Ignorance of God lies at the root of the church's weakness today. Written, mind you, in 1973. Fifty years on, nearly, from the publication of that book, do you think that we're any better in the church today? I'm sure in some ways we are, and in some ways we aren't. I hope that you would agree with his perspective, though, that ignorance of God means weakness in the church. And if you put it positively, that knowledge of God, familiarity with God... Well, oh, that brings power in the church. That brings strength in the church. That brings faithfulness in the church. That is this study that matters most to the Christian believer and to the Christian church. For kids and students, recognize that most of your early years are taken up with study, aren't they? You know, study of math, the study of English, the study of art, history, science, whatever it may be. Frankly, it might feel like many more months than not are given over to studying these academic subjects. But parents, help your kids remember and help your students remember that there's only the study of one subject that could ever bring eternal life. What the Lord Jesus Christ Himself said was knowing the one true God and the one whom He has sent, His Son. And those of you in the room that may be older than students, you remember those years, many years ago when you studied those subjects of math and English and science and geology or whatever it may have been. And you might think, well, such years of studying gratefully have been left behind. Well, know that in our text today, Moses is about 80 years old. He's in the final third of his life. We know he dies at roughly the age of 120. He's only got 40 years left. And it's Moses in this text that is doing what we all must be doing all the days of our life. He's growing in his knowledge of God. He's deepening his awareness of who God is, what his character is for his people. And so I trust all of us will learn more about God this morning. Because that's just a simple theme that I want you to see in our first 15 verses of chapter 3. The truth about God. And as we look these at these 15 verses, I want to give you seven particular truths about God that I find and we find in this passage. And to help kind of distinguish, mark off this scene there at Sinai, I want you to see, first of all, God seeks. Secondly, God speaks. And thirdly, God sends. He's a seeking, speaking, and sending God. And one of the more interesting things about Exodus chapter 1 is the timeline of the book as a whole. Because the first two chapters of Exodus covered something like 400 years in Israel's history. Chapter 3, our text today, to the end of the book, chapter 40, covers one year of God's redemption of His people. And the reason the timeline slows down so much, almost to a standstill compared to the first two chapters, is because what we saw last week... At the end of chapter 2, Israel's in bondage and slavery, ruthless slavery there in Egypt. Their growing number has Pharaoh fearing their potential military might, and so he's enacting these crowd control measures that will control their growth. At least that's what he thinks. And the last measure was commanding all the people of Egypt to throw the babies, the male babies of Israel into the Nile River. And in the scene of great divine irony, it was a baby put into a river by Hebrew parents... That now was adopted into Pharaoh's household. Found by one of his daughters. She names him Moses. This very Moses who's going to become the deliverer and redeemer of God's people. When Moses turns about 40 years old. He strikes down an Egyptian dead for his harsh treatment on Israelite, an Israelite slave. And Moses fled into the wilderness that was Midian. And the text told us at the end of chapter 2. It was during those many days. four decades or so of Moses' life. That God heard the cry of his people Israel. He remembered the covenant that he had made with the patriarchs. He saw their oppression and affliction. And God knew that it was time for the exodus to begin. So the timeline now slows down. It zooms evermore, doesn't it? And to this man named Moses, for the exodus is going to begin with him. Notice as God seeks in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro... The priest of Midian, as his flock, as he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Surely by any modern standards, Moses would appear at this moment an abject failure in the world. Here's a man that had ascended to heights of prominence, a place of power, a place of expertise in Pharaoh's palace. And now what is he? Just a sojourning shepherd. Surrounded by stinky sheep in the western wilderness that is Horeb. But it's sometimes true that it's when you're in the midst of your most ordinary vocation that God meets you. That His grace intervenes. It's true that sometimes years might go by. Maybe like Moses' life. Decades go by. And it seems all apparently fruitless. But in God's providence, in God's sovereignty, he means those years of preparation to bring a harvest of fruit in the future that you couldn't possibly imagine. I mean, what better role, what better job would there have been for Moses after he gains all the expertise of the Egyptians to spend decades shepherding sheep? That's going to be the rest of his life. Delivering, redeeming, judging, shepherding the sheep named Israel. And it's there as he's wandering around Horeb that he sees an unusual sight. So kids, the word Horeb, it just means dryness. It means desolate. We might say something today like, to be in Horeb was rather horrible. You didn't go to Horeb unless you absolutely had to. And there he is, shepherding his sheep. When he looks off in the distance, notice verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now the Hebrew more literally says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the heart of the fire. And the text is going to soon make clear that the one speaking from this burning bush is none other than the Lord Himself. So you might then realize how throughout the centuries, no small number of people have, not wrongly, understood the one speaking in this passage to be none other than the second person of the Trinity. God's messenger, God's angel, His eternal Son. In the heart of the bush, a flame of fire. That soon is going to speak. But Moses realized quite quickly that this bush isn't like anything you've seen before. I remember years past, my mother grew up in Michigan. And so we tended to spend many winter holidays up in the land of Michigan. Hoping for a white Christmas because you never got them down here in the south. And whenever we were at Grandpa and Grandma Kunzman's house, we younger stone children... We have these fond memories of Grandpa Cousin building fires to keep the house warm. You know, we just didn't do that, at least at the house of my youth in Richardson, Texas. And we were just amazed at his skill with the fire. You know, he just had this masterful ability to stoke it at the right time, to add fuel at the right time, to make sure that it was burning appropriately, brightly, and, and full. And so it would be pretty common after dinner that he would go outside. You know, he noticed notice the fire was kind of low, and he'd just grab a log and throw it on, or a log or two, and throw them on, and soon enough that fire was roaring again. But that kind of fire in Michigan is totally unlike the fire there that Moses sees at Horeb, isn't it? Look at the end of verse 2. Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Truth number one of God in this text, the God is inexhaustible. The flame is meant to show us the inexhaustible glory of God, the power of God, the strength of God that doesn't need to be stoked, that doesn't need to be fed because this flame just continues burning and burning and burning without any help without any assistance along the way because God doesn't need any help. God doesn't need any assistance. And you wonder what it was, don't you, that exactly caught Moses' eye. You see, in verse 3, he says, Well, I'm going to turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Yeah, we don't know how far Moses was away, but how did he know the bush was not burning? Maybe it was small enough that by then, surely, it should have burned down already. Or maybe there were some kind of leaves on the bush that weren't being consumed. Whatever it was, he knows this is a most unusual sight. And it's the sight of a seeking God. A God who seeks his own. Because God now means to speak. So we move from God seeks to God speaks. Look at verse 4. And the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside. God called to him out of the bush, Moses. Moses. Have you ever seen movie adaptations of this scene Uh, You might be like me and you'll watch those movie adaptations and wonder if they've gotten the tone just right. Because we don't know, do we, how God sounded when he spoke to Moses. Or was it this cry of just earnestness, Moses, Moses? Or was it a cry much more of sublime sovereignty, Moses, Moses? Or was it much more casual and comforting, Moses? Moses Probably not that. <laughs> because notice what God says next in verse 5. Moses says, "Here I am." God says, "Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground." Believe it or not, this is the first time the word holy has shown up in God's word since Genesis chapter 2 verse 3, which called the Sabbath Holy. God's holiness demands His people's reverence. And it was pretty common in that ancient Eastern world that you displayed reverence, you displayed humility by taking your sandals off, taking your shoes off. It was actually a mark of the priests later on in the Old Testament that they always served in the temple or tabernacle in God's presence with bare feet because they were commanded to because of the blinding, consuming power that was God's Holiness. So truth number two is that God is incomparable. He is inexhaustible and he's incomparable. I have a friend who's a pastor in India. And every time that he preaches, he comes behind his pulpit and he takes his sandals off. Because he knows that place is holy ground. And Moses is commanded to do the same thing. And he does. And God now continues to speak and shows us truth number three. God is covenantal. You see verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's nothing new, is it, in redemptive history to hear God speaking about his covenant promises made to his covenant people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of covenant making and covenant keeping. But verse 6 actually is quite different than anything we normally hear about God's covenant nature. Because you see the beginning phrase, I am the God of your Father. It's singular. You can skip down to verse 15. You see it's how it's normally used. The God of your fathers. It's something different, isn't it, to say, Moses, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of your father. And of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, of course, the covenant promises don't end with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I continue through the generations even to this very day to perhaps kids, your father, perhaps students, your father, as this, as the God of your household. An inexhaustible, incomparable, and covenantal God. Fourth truth is God is merciful. God is merciful. Look at what he says in verse 7 through 8. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of all of those peoples listed there at the end of verse 8. Some of you might want to underline that phrase there in verse 7 at the end. I know their sufferings. You might be in here today and Satan's tempting you to think that God doesn't know your sufferings. Remember what we saw last week. He hears, he remembers, he knows, he sees, and is merciful to redeem you from that affliction. And it's important, students, notice this. It's not just a redemption from something, it's a redemption to something. You see that again in verse 7? It's not just a redemption from Egypt, it's also a redemption to the promised land. And some of you today need to remember that to come to Jesus Christ doesn't merely mean a redemption from sin. It's that and a redemption to God to holiness, to a living communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His mercy is not merely one that just redeems us from the plague, from the bondage, but to freedom and to salvation. So who is God? What's the truth about God? Well, He's an inexhaustible God. He's an incomparable God. He's a covenantal God and He is, of course, a merciful God. He seeks, he speaks. Notice verse 10, God sends as well. Come, he says to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You know, I'm sure a number of you have seen this throughout the years in workplaces, perhaps neighborhoods, maybe schools, kids, students. You might see this too. Sadly, it happens too often in churches Where you have people that seem to be gifted with the spiritual gift of pointing out problems but never providing solutions. And Moses maybe wasn't pointing out the problem to God in the same way. But certainly, like many of those people who point out problems and then stand back and then just wait for someone else to be the solution. Here he is encountering God at the burning bush, this flame that's not consuming the bush. And then he hears what? You, Moses, you are going to be the answer to the problem of the affliction. And we'll see more next week, Lord willing, how Moses, he doesn't want that job description. He has no interest whatsoever in being the redeemer, the deliverer. He's going to give excuse after excuse, reason after reason, as to why he's not the man for the job. I'll notice his first response in verse 11. Pretty general and standard, isn't it? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Sometimes God might come to you and say, you likewise are going to be the solution to the problem. I'm going to call you to go fix the issue. And you might think, you know who you're talking to, right? And God says, yes. I know who I'm talking to. And you're going to go because I've sought you. I've spoken to you. And now I'm sending you. The fifth truth you want to see about God is he is personal. Look at verse 12. But I will be with you. That really should be translated, I am With you, I think. And this shall be the sign for you that I have seen you and sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. How often it is in Scripture that God's promise of presence is meant to be more than enough to the doubt, to the fear, to the anxiety, to the objection? I am with you. It doesn't depend on Moses' power, does it? The exodus that is coming, it depends on God's presence with His chosen Redeemer. I hope some of you might find comfort in God's covenant promise of His presence today. If He didn't give you any other word, would it be enough to simply hear the Father say, I am with you. Hear the Son say, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Moses continues though with his objections. Notice. Question now, verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It's a rather interesting question, isn't it? Maybe it's spiritual snark on the part of Israel. Oh, really, you are come to redeem us. Well, what's God's name? Almost like a shibboleth of sorts, you know, this kind of code word to get into the redemption work. But you really actually need to see it because that's not the way the text needs to be taken. It, It seems as though the affliction of 400 years has caused God's people to forget God's name. Or it even could be possible that it's just no longer central in their devotion as it used to be. Oftentimes, affliction comes, sorrows rise, suffering grows, and you forget not only that God has promised to be with you, you forget that he even has a name altogether. It was about 15 years ago that I had the occasion to climb this 100-foot ladder off a fire engine. You know, one of those that they raise up for search and rescue kind of purposes. And such things may excite some of you children. It makes me very nervous because I don't like heights. And it was for this class I was taking, so I didn't have an option. It's like pass, fail, up and down. Uh, I'm going to be, like, roped in, right? No, just go up and come down. You sure I'm really not going to be roped in? No, just get up there and come back down. Do you see how high that thing is? Just get up there and come back down. So everyone before me, up and down, up and down, up and down. I thought, I'll just do it the way they're doing it, right? Just up and down, as fast as I can make it. So 80 feet go by. I'm like, man, there's like 10 runs left. Then the wind started blowing. And it started moving. And I looked down... That's a long way down. So, those last ten rungs or so, ever so slowly, up to the top. Because it's true, increased height requires increased care. Increased height often brings increased trepidation. And I tell you that because when we come to verse 14, this is one of the summits of all Scripture. Increased height in knowing God deserves increased care. Increased fear, even doesn't it? For look at what he says to Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. Your students, I would wonder if you heard that name of God, if you heard that truth from God. Uh, you might think back to yourself in the midst of seeing it and think, You are who? Because we always give some sort of modifier to it, don't we? Like in my own life. I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. But only God gets to say, I am. That's just this Hebrew verb, to be. You could translate it, I will be what I will be. It gives us the sixth truth about God. He's unchangeable because it speaks about his independence, his all-sufficiency, his ability, his pure actuality that God just is. I just am. In every single situation, you don't need any more than that. I am, has sent me. But because we often need more than that, God gives Moses more than that, doesn't He? You see, verse 15 at the very end of our text, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. That's where we get this word, Yahweh. The Lord. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. So what's the seventh and final truth about God in this passage? He is eternal. This is my name forever. This is the truth about God revealed there at the place that would soon be known as Sinai. R.C. Sproul, the late theologian that died a couple of years ago, he used to love to tell this story of once meeting with a consultant for his ministries, Ligonier Ministries, you know, cast vision and kind of organize the ministry in a different way. And the consultant there with his paper before Dr. Sproul said, okay, question number one, what is it that you want non-Christians to know most? And Sproul said, well, that's easy. They know that God is, think Romans 1 language but they don't know who God is. We must tell them the truth about who God is. So the consultant wrote down that answer and filled it in in his kind of grid of leadership and visionary practice. And he said, okay, question number two. What's the thing more than anything else you want to tell Christians, believers? And he said, oh, that's easy. It's the exact same thing. The truth about who God is. And he said, quote, what we need most in the church today is an awakening to the character of God. I wonder if you would agree with such a sentiment, an awakening, a revival, in the character of God. Well, Moses certainly would. The Lord, as he's bringing revival now to his people there in redemption out of Exodus, certainly says what we need most is the character of God. And So to help you understand how you might apply this truth about God most specifically to your hearts, let me give you two final things to meditate on as we begin to close. The first of which, trust God's sovereignty trust God's sovereignty. Because look back at verse 12. In many ways, it's the pivotal part of the passage. He not only promises that I will be with you, I am with you, but here's what's getting ready to happen. Moses, you're going to bring the people out of Egypt, and this is the sign. You will worship me on this mountain. And you know how the story continues. All of that exactly happened as God said it exactly would. Which is telling us what? God is sovereign over Israel. God is sovereign over Egypt to bring his purposes to pass. God continues to be sovereign over every nation to bring his purposes to pass. Not just that, God is sovereign over Moses. We'll see next week as the conversation continues. He's sovereign over Pharaoh to bring his purposes to pass. That means he's sovereign over you. No matter how old you are. No matter your struggle. No matter your difficulty. No, no matter your temptation. No matter your joys. No matter your sorrows. He's sovereign over you. To do the exact same thing. To bring his purposes to pass. And if you're a Christian and you trust in this sufficiency. You'll find that this sovereignty of God. It's working for your salvation. But if you reject him and you remain in unbelief and unrepentance, you'll find this sovereignty means your destruction. Will you trust in his sovereignty? Number two, trust in his sufficiency. You see again verse 12. It's, if it's right to take it, the translation that I gave you there, but I am with you. It's really everything that follows related to God's name comes from this central promise, I am with you, Moses, I am with you. But what is your name if they ask me? I am who I am. All you need to know, Moses, is I am. Consider God's sufficiency in your own life. Some of you are in here today and you're struggling through doubt. God says, I am sufficient to give you the truth. Some of you today are in here and you're struggling with constant temptation. God says, I am sufficient to deliver you with spiritual strength. Some of you are dealing with hurt. With sorrow or suffering, he says what? I am sufficient to comfort you amidst your weakness. This is who God is. He's inexhaustible. He's incomparable. He's covenantal. He's merciful. He's personal. He's unchangeable. And he is eternal. Jesus one day got in a debate with Jewish leaders about his identity. They essentially said, who are you? And he says in John's Gospel, chapter 8, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, the Jews themselves are smart enough to know what's going on here. They say, hold on a second, Jesus. You're not even 50 years old, and you're telling me you've seen Abraham? What does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. His is the name that is eternal. His is the name above all names. Which is why when we preach the gospel, we say there is no salvation under any name under heaven than the name of Jesus Christ. Those who know the name of the Lord, the psalmist says, trust in Him. Will you trust this God of sovereignty? Trust this God of sufficiency who has let you know Him In Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are God of mercy. You are a God of grace. That you continue to meet us in Jesus Christ. In the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our difficulty. We know that you are still with us. That you have drawn near to us in your son. So we pray that you would strengthen us in his mercy. That you would comfort us in his tenderness. That you would open our hearts to the salvation that's found in knowing you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.